Welcome back, everybody, to another week of the So We Speak podcast. We've been hitting a couple of book summaries over the last few weeks. We've gotten some great feedback from you guys on the Open Theism podcast. Love getting to interact on that um, and, and have some had some really thoughtful and, and really careful responses to that. Um, that's always really fun for us to get to engage with you all on that. And then going through our books of the Bible, Obadiah and Matthew. Matthew was one of my favorites that we've done so far. Mm. But um, I'm thinking today is going to be a high point for both of us. And I hope it's a high point for you guys that are listening. Today we're going to tackle part one of Genesis. And before I let you dive in on the summary, I just wanted to give a little explanation. Mm Mm-hmm. There's probably going to be several times, we didn't map all of this out before we started, there's probably going to be several times where we want to split up books of the Bible and, and then sometimes where we want to combine. So, I, for example, I could see us doing First and Second Samuel together. Uh, I could see us splitting it up. It's hard to know. But, but in this case, what, here's why we wanted to split Genesis up into two pieces. First reason is, uh, from a literary standpoint, it is split up into two pieces as you read the text. So as you get to the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, you'll notice some stylistic changes in the book of Genesis. Now you might say, well, does that mean that it was originally split? That's not what I'm saying at all. It's always been a unified whole. There's no evidence that uh, Genesis ever traveled around with separate sections. But what I am saying is there's a natural literary break between the first part of Genesis and the rest of it. And then secondly, it just seems like there are so many huge questions in the first 10 chapters of Genesis that since we didn't want to do a two-hour podcast episode, we thought it might be good just to try and see uh, all that we can get, get into part one of this podcast. And so maybe even before we summarize this section, I, I want to kick off the podcast this way and just say, why do you think it is that... Compared to the rest of the Bible, the first 10 chapters of Genesis, maybe pound for pound, have the most big questions attached to them. What do you think about that? That's a great question. Uh, and obviously my answer is going to be an opinion. Uh, the, nothing in the text that I think would definitively answer that. But in my opinion, you set the stage in Genesis with some of the big meaningful questions of where did we come from how did we get to where we are? And to a certain extent, you know, what is our purpose here? Those are huge life questions. Now, the reason I think that you see so many questions about Genesis is God is not as interested, apparently, in answering those questions as we are in learning the answers to those questions in a very yeah. physical sense. So, for example, the creation story, you could write a 20-volume set on that, and we, we might be satisfied but God does it in two chapters. So I think perhaps some of that is is God is setting the stage to tell us about things that are more important to him. We, being insatiably curious, find uh, some of these things very, you know, if not important, at least we're curious about them. So I think a lot of the questions come from the fact that God hasn't chosen to give us all the answers we want. What do you think? Yeah, definitely there is not enough information here to satisfy all of our curiosity. And the the question is rightly posed, what would be enough information to satisfy our curiosity? (laughs) It's the most distant from us, obviously chronologically. It's a text that we're probably familiar with, but really don't know a lot of the background. The other thing I'm just thinking about, and now I'm thinking about out loud, which is dangerous on the podcast, but I wonder there's something sacred about going back to the beginning, the founding of anything. And you see this in a lot of our political dialogue as well. When we want to settle discussions about the United States, politics, uh, whatever, what do we always do? We go back to, well, okay, the founding fathers believed this. And the implicit question there is, why does it matter what the founding fathers thought? And, you know, there's actually political groups in our country that have adopted that as their official position right. uh, is they don't care what the founding fathers thought. But but for most of us, there's something about that that really matters. And well, let me jump in and just say this. Ancestry.com, 23andMe, uh, the genealogy, I mean, it's, it's a huge thing today. And I think it's symptomatic of what you're talking about. No, that's exactly right. We want to go back to the origins. We want to go back to the beginning. What was this intended to be carries a lot of weight with us. 
And for whatever reason that is, we probably could do a separate episode on that. Uh, for whatever reason that is, I think Genesis has some of the same appeal, some of the same uh, right. framework and reasoning that we're trying to access. We go back to the beginning and we say, yeah, what, what, what was this supposed to be like? What, what was it like in the beginning? And uh, some of the most famous words in the Bible kick off this section. In the beginning, God right. created the heavens and the earth. And we'll talk about what that means and how that frames up the rest of Scripture. But uh, let's do a quick overview of these first few chapters, and then we'll dive into various issues that uh, occur as we talk. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, let me start at the end and observe that with chapter 12, so we'll stop before 12, you begin the story of Abraham and God's plan working through a specific people group. That's the first time we can reasonably date some of these events. In other words, that does appear to line up to known history around, uh, there'd be a lot of argument about this, but uh, basically 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Before that, the first 11 chapters, obviously far, far more difficult to date, and in obviously intentionally so. So the first 11 chapters encompass a great deal of history, regardless of your view of old earth, young earth, etc. There's a lot packed in here. So what are the high points that uh, God wants to talk about? Uh, let me just go chapter by chapter. Chapter one, roughly, is creation. Creation of the universe, creation of earth. And then second chapter, into the first, into the second chapter, is creation of humanity and humanity's unique place. Chapter three is the fall in the garden, the fall of humanity, the corruption of humanity. Chapter four, uh, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And chapter four is dominated by the story of these two brothers. Chapter 5 is a genealogy that begins to flesh out the human race. Chapter 6 through 8, we are introduced to Noah in a time of terrible uh, sin, behavior, and humanity has basically spun down. And chapter 6 through 8 is God's recreation, in some sense, of the flood and Noah. Chapter 9 and 10, you see that the new beginning with Noah and uh, his children, and you see the descendants then, and how the earth is populated with the various different people groups that then come from Noah. And then finally in chapter 11, as the people spread around the earth, you have that famous story of the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 11 ends by picking one of the sons of Noah and tracing his children, his descendants, down to Abraham, which sets the stage for chapter 12. Yeah, there's a lot in these chapters. Um, so let's let's dive into chapter 1, or at least the beginning of, of the narrative. You know, when we, come to this, when we come to this section, there's a couple of looming questions. And uh, on one hand, I think we're going to disappoint some people and say that we're not actually going to answer how old the earth is in this podcast episode. Uh, <laughs> You know, if anything, if we want to do that, we need to have Ben on here. He's he's the resident expert on that topic. Uh, we'll have him on to talk about old versus young creation. And actually, we'll probably get some really differing views between the three of us on that topic. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the time being, we're not going to answer that question because we want to answer a more important question. And um, that is, what is the main purpose of this story of creation? How does it interface with other stories of creation? And, and what are we supposed to do with it as Christians today? Maybe take a crack at part of that. Yeah, let me start with a caveat, because there's a lot of misconceptions that science has a good answer to this question. The Bible has a different answer. Ancient cultures had yet other answers, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, etc., Etc. The the truth is, no one has uh, a definitive answer. Science has no idea how the universe got here. Up until the 1960s, scientists thought that the Earth had always been here; it was just eternal. Not a very scientific idea, but very satisfying. And then uh, in the 19 late 1960s, you get the Big Bang theory and the mathematics uh, that uh, you know Stephen Hawking. And Roger Penrose, the mathematics that verified and say, hey, it sure looks like this thing had a beginning. We don't know what happened. And now, right before he died, Stephen Hawking 
kind of reversing course and saying, you know what, maybe there's some fancy footwork I can do with that big bang to make it go away. The moral of the story is there's no satisfying or convincing answer to that. So there are a lot of, quote, creation stories. I think that uh, the way I would tee this up is, and I'll just go ahead and give you my view of this, and I'm going to just sidestep the young earth, old earth, not because I don't think they're important. I think there are important pitfalls and important highs in both of those ideas. But it sure looks to me, the way this starts, in the beginning, God. You know, God begins to create. There's a fundamental idea. When you look at the universe, it's without form and void. The most appealing understanding of the scripture to me is that the rest of the creation story shows the central character, God, solving the problem of there being a formless and an empty universe. The first three days of creation, in my view, basically are giving form, light and dark and earth and sky and giving some kind of structure to the universe. And the last three days, basically populating it with creatures that God has created. I think that rather than a physics text, I read this more as a maybe the right word is a theological text, to tell you a little more about the why of creation rather than the specific mechanism. That's, a, that's my first stab at that. What do you think? I totally agree with the intention. I think this is a book about God. It's a book about humanity. It's a book about salvation. The things that we need to take away from Genesis 1 and 2 are the nature of God, the nature of how we were created to be, and the way that our relationship with God has been constructed both from the beginning and with the fall, if you think about it. I mean, that's what those chapters right. are trying to tell us, even more than what are the particulars of creation. But I want to push back a little bit, too, against going too far in that direction, which sometimes you hear people say it's, it's not about creation at all. It's really just about these spiritual lessons that we get. And that I think that's an overcorrection. Uh, because I, I do think this passage is about creation. It's just not about the physics of creation, uh, although there's some things that we could tell uh, about it from this passage. But it, it's not—it's it, almost like the argument that people make where, you know, for—you grow up thinking prayers about God, and then somebody for the first time ever at a youth thing tells you, like, prayer is about you changing your heart. And uh -huh. then you believe that prayer is all about you, and then you realize later, well, prayer is neither all about God nor all about you. <laughs> Right. It's actually about both of those things. That's a little bit how I feel about the creation narrative is we have this pendulum swing of either it is every detail. We should be able to date the earth to the exact hour that it was created. And all of this needs to make sense on the surface with modern physics. Or uh, we don't really have any information about that. Whatever science says, science says. And whatever the Bible says, the Bible says. But they are non-overlapping um, texts. I think that's probably both of those things are a little bit of an overreaction. We're getting some interesting things about the creation of the universe. For example, Christians believe that the universe was created from nothing. Uh, that's Correct. a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. It has everything to do with creation and with science. But we also believe that the creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2 give us the tension between God's presence, his eminence in chapter 2, uh -huh. and his magisterial distance and power and otherness in chapter 1. Well, those are not scientific questions. Right. Um, we're not measuring the distance between us and God, but that's something that the Bible's communicating. So... The way I like to think of this, and a great book on this topic, if this is something that really interests you, uh, this will not get into all the technical details of the science and all that. There's there's other great books for that. But as far as reading the first parts of Genesis in terms of this debate, there's a book called Controversy of the Ages by Ted Cable. And what he argues is uh, the argument in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 shouldn't be over the age of the earth but what the lines are that separate a Christian worldview from a non-Christian worldview. And that's where things actually get pretty tricky uh, when you start to look at this. Uh, you know, I would say what we just covered, um, you know, that the universe was created from nothing is something that all Christians need to believe regardless of what science says. Um, secondly, I think you must 
read the narrative accurately. Okay, so you can't just pick and choose places to read the narrative and, and where not to. Like you're reading, regardless of how old you think the earth is or how it was created and all that needs to fit the text. And then the last thing, and, and I don't know if we differ on this. I know Christians Christians do, but I would actually lay this down as a, as a pretty important issue is one thing I think we have to take away from the first two chapters of Genesis is the unique creation of Adam and Eve. Um, it's, it's popular now to think in science that there were never less than maybe 10,000 hominids at one time. And, and maybe what God did was take two individuals from that group of people and, and bestow some kind of mental or spiritual capacity on them and call them Adam and Eve. Uh, right. In my opinion, that's that's outside of the bounds of what Genesis allows for in the creation story. I think one of the things we have to hold to, both because of the narrative in Genesis, but also the way that the narrative is interpreted in the New Testament by Paul primarily, is that there is a unique and special creation of Adam and Eve, not just a continuation of creation, but something actually different, qualitatively different than that. Um, you know, there's a lot of dis- there's a lot of discussion on that, but that's one of the things I would hold. Well, I agree. That's one of the things I put in my note to uh, to mention too. Is I do believe that it it is important that there be a unique creation of Adam and Eve. I think the other view is an attempt to harmonize this with a macroevolutionary understanding. And I don't want to argue against the macro under evolutionary understanding at this moment, but I believe it's far too great an accommodation. And here's one of the reasons why is uh, one of the key key ideas in Genesis that has nothing to do with how old the earth is, is that we are created in the image of God. There is a value, an inherent value to human life. If you move to the macroevolutionary point of view in terms of just how you understand our world today, one of the key tenets of that, and you can't get around it. I know people want to say people are special, and by the way, we evolve from lower life forms, that there's a macroevolutionary process going on. Those two statements are not rationally compatible. They simply aren't. In fact, if you look at the macroevolutionary model, what you see is that people do not actually matter. You are the result of random processes. And what you see, quote, in nature is you see that individuals do not actually matter. Uh, Only their ability to reproduce matters in that scheme. Now, we all want to believe that we matter, that human beings are unique, but the only explanation for that is the Christian explanation for that. Nothing else holds together intellectually. So I think without the uniqueness of Adam and Eve, if you go too far to accommodate the macroevolutionary model, you lose any, any uh, possibility of holding the view that human beings are unique. Yeah, and that's a, that's a battleground for sure. I mean, BioLogos is one of the biggest... Uh, Groups that's writing books and papers and research fellows and all of that uh, having to do with the way the world was created and biology and the, and the Word of God. And it's a really well-respected group. Francis Collins was a founding board member. Keller's on the board there. And they don't hold to that. They, don't, they do not hold that you have to believe in the unique creation of Adam and Eve. And so there, there's a lot of room for discussion on this, on this topic. And obviously, I think Keller uh, would share the belief that humans have a special dignity, but I, I don't know how you believe that without a special creation. I tell you what we'll do. We'll well, I do think, by the way, uh, that Keller's position is a unique uh, Adam and Eve. I just simply think that he's comfortable being around people that don't share that. Yeah, I tell you, we'll just bring Ben on and make him defend Tim Keller. There you go. That's and, a good idea. Uh, then, then we'll hash that one out. But uh, for the time being, I think what we have to take away is... Special creation, uniqueness and dignity of all human beings, uh, that before the fall, the creation of both the world and of humanity is good. God says over and over that creation is good, that humanity, very good, created men and women, male and female, both in the image of God, uh, and, and that just one or just this monolithic vision of humanity is not the completeness of what God planned for humanity. So he says it's not good for man to be alone. He creates 
man and woman in his image together. Um, and it says he creates woman from man, that, that there is this sense that God has a design in creation, both to bring glory to himself and for the flourishing of his creation of the world and of humanity. And so uh, he puts Adam and Eve in this garden he gives them a job to do to cultivate the garden. He names the animals. Uh, and then the fall happens. And again, we, we can't uh, preach all of our favorite sermons on these passages, but uh, the fall is the most significant uh, event outside of creation in this set of passages. It is the prelude for what happens for the next rest 99% of the Bible until we get to the end. Um, yeah. Humanity rebels against God. They sin and death come into the world. God makes the first sacrifice, covers them with the skins of animals, and they're expelled from the garden, from the immediate presence of God. And from then until Revelation 22 is the story of how God redeems and brings humanity back into his presence. Um, then we start to get some, some more interesting stuff, a little bit more foreign to us. Um, we, do you want to add anything else about the creation, garden, fall, any of that? I feel like this is this is the stuff that gets taught on a lot. Yeah, um, I, I do. I want to add a, a couple of things about creation. I want to ask you a question about the fall. And if it's a big can of worms, uh, you can just let a few of them out. First of all, on creation, uh, to jump on what you just said, you also learn some key things about the nature of God. You see God is love at the very beginning. He creates a place for his special creation, humanity. He creates work for them to do. He wants them to thrive. And even when they sin, as you said, he makes skins of animals to cover them. And you see it coexisting with the justice of God, the wrath of God against sin. And so you see the love of God and the justice of God played out in these three chapters. And so we learn a lot about God just by watching what and how he created. Mm-hmm. My question is this, and I know this can get very theological, but maybe you could sketch a couple of thoughts on it, and that is, did God know, and further, did God plan for Adam and Eve to sin in the garden? Did it surprise him, uh, or did he know ahead of time, and if he did know ahead of time, was this somehow part of his plan? I know people look at that differently. There's probably not a definitive answer, but what do you think about that? Well, I, this is interesting because it goes back to the conversation we had about open theism, Molinism. Um, those are dealing with different texts, but they're getting at the same philosophical issue, which is what's the role of, of God's sovereignty when his foreknowledge and his foreordination are together, separated, working together, dependent on each other, uh, however you construe that. Um, the second thing is, I, I don't think anybody is going to say, other than those who are, are, are in the open, like fully in the open position, but I think most Orthodox Christians are going to say that the, the fall did not surprise God, that God knew about the fall, but that God did not make the fall happen. And there mm-hmm. are various ways of talking about that. So, for example, uh, the, the easiest way is just to say God created free moral agents. And we discussed freedom at length in that podcast. We, we don't just mean uh, free from any constraints, but the ability to make decisions. God right. makes free creatures who he knows have a legitimate choice between good and evil. And uh, because of, of the temptation that enters into the garden in the serpent, uh, Eve and then Adam both choose to disobey God. Uh, I, the most compelling argument, I think, on that is just an argument that, that uh, the fall, the choice that is in the fall, is necessary for cognition and consciousness. That uh, at heart of what's going on in the garden is that, that uh, Adam and Eve chose themselves over God. That there is an there is a level of differentiation that is in the fabric of cognition, and uh, I guess we would say conscience mm-hmm. that made it possible for them to uh, choose something other than God. 
So the, uh, you know, one of the fundamental tenets of creation is that God is not his creation. He's not the universe and he is not humanity, that humanity and God right. are different. Well, that to me would, would mean that there is then this ability to choose between the two options. And, that, and that's what humanity did. So the, the place that this gets tricky is when you have this discussion without a lot of nuance and um, usually there's an ax to grind where because the fall happened and because God knew about it, now God is responsible for the fall in a way that uh, he's morally culpable or that humanity maybe has the right to judge him for that or something, which when you get down to it, these are all a, a little bit silly when you think about it. The creator of the universe, all-powerful, creates humanity. If he had created them to be objects of his wrath, um, it seems unjust to us because we know that that's not God's character. But if we didn't have that in us and we thought maybe, oh, wow, this is really, really unjust for God to do that, um, who are we to say that to God anyway? Um, he's right. the one that created. He made the system. So on the one hand, that's kind of a reductio-type argument. But but there's something there. That usually comes from a place of wounding. It comes from a place of misunderstanding the character of God. It comes from a place of maybe resenting things that have happened and blaming God. And those are those are real conversations that need to be had. But I think we would be pretty safe to say God knows about the fall. He understands um, that humanity is going to choose something else. He decides anyway to create the universe, to create Adam and Eve, to put them in the garden. Uh, and he, in some ways, allows that to happen. Now, the right. really technical discussion would be, does he decide, not necessarily in time, but in logical priority, does he decide to send Christ as the redeemer for humanity's sin before, during, or after the fall? And this is what's called the superlapsarian, postlapsarian, or infralapsarian argument. That's where you get really technical, and I don't even want to venture to give an answer to that. But that, that's also an interesting question is, did God have the cross in mind from the very beginning of right. creation. And of course, we think of passages like Ephesians 1, where it says that mm -hmm. uh, this was God's plan from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he predestined his people. So that, that, that creates all kinds of interesting discussions. Of course, we don't get any of that in Genesis, but uh, something to think about as we're, as we're walking through this text. Well, and, you know, I don't know if you like this metaphor or not, but here's one that uh, coming from the heights of uh, theology, which you accurately describe some of the intricate ideas there, I want to come back to uh, maybe an Alvin Plantinga argument of even knowing that humanity would fall, that there's a sense in which this is the best of all possible worlds to create. In other words, it's still worth creating. And here's an analogy I would use, and I understand it's imperfect, but I believe you'll get the point. Before you have a child, you know that when this child is two years old, before they even know the difference between good and evil, the child will disobey, will literally make a decision to disobey. And not only will you decide to have the child anyway, you will then begin to discipline. And I, I literally mean that in its best sense. Discipline, train the child because you have the hope, in our case, the certainty in God's, that you can, quote, in some sense, mature them and perfect them. And consequently, the act of having a child is worth the, the difficulty you go through to get to the adult. Now, imperfect analogy, but I think that's an easy way to think about what God did here. Even if you know ahead of time bad things will happen, you can make the decision that it is still best to create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to add one more thing to that, that that previews the next few chapters. This is one of my big takeaways from the beginning of Genesis and, and one of the biggest themes in the entire Bible is that while it seems mind-blowing to us and it's really hard to understand why this is the case, it is obvious that it is the case, biblically speaking, that God prefers redemption to innocence. Now, yes. don't ask me exactly how God arrived at that because he is pure and holy and he can't stand to look at sin. But if you look at the way that the Bible lays out creation and fall, Noah, the Tower of Babel, Christ, his resurrection, revelation, the new heavens and the new earth at the end of that, 
God's ideal, the best possible world, is not just one where humanity remains innocent and never falls, but the best possible world is one in which God redeems humanity through the death of his son, and that's exactly what he did. I think that's a huge takeaway reading the Bible is for us it might seem like it would have been better if Adam and Eve had never fallen, but apparently God sees that it is the best world in which humanity does fall, but they are rescued by God sending his own son for them. We have the gospel, we have redemption, we have restoration with him in the end. That is God's priority for what makes a great world. And we see that from the very beginning of scripture. Cole, that's a, that's a really uh, deep and really astute observation. I think that's key because it does explain uh, obviously what's happening in the Bible. But uh, let me just divert for a second. There's a huge personal application there. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I regretted, I repented. But there was a part of me that went beyond that, and it thought, what a waste I'm damaged goods, and I will always be damaged goods. I was a sinner before, and I'll never really shake the taint of that. Mm -hmm. If only I had been like some of my friends who became a Christian at seven years old and and had lived at least a God-honoring life since then. But what you're just now saying is that nobody's damaged goods. And in fact, how you got to Christ was in and of itself meaningful. And I think that's powerful for people who look back at their past and say, you know, this really could not have been otherwise. This right. is part of God's plan, how I got here, not just the fact that I got here. Right. Yeah, it's true on an individual level. It's true on a universal level. Um, that's one of the big takeaways. Uh, as we exit the garden in chapter 3 and we see Adam and Eve, they're going east, they're going away from Eden. Um, things get bad pretty quick in Genesis. <laughs> That's an they understatement. Have, they have these two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain slays Abel. Cain and Abel is a really interesting story that, unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about. Uh, and I have heard some great conjectures about Cain and Abel. Um, biblically speaking, we really don't know much about them outside of this text. It's only referred to uh, maybe twice, the, the most prominent would be in the book of Hebrews, the end of the argument, he says, the, the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground for justice. And that really is the theme moving into the story of Noah. Uh, we go through the offspring of the line of Seth, and there's a little glimmer of hope in there. Um, I, I just want to make a, an observation. This, this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible because you get these great little Asides and these great little um, sub-stories that we know nothing about, but we get fun information about it. As, as we go to the end of chapter 4, we see Cain slaying Abel. Cain, he goes away. He gets the mark on his head. He uh, begins to have children, and he names... This is great. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Uh, he is self-centered. He's self-glorifying, and he begins to build cities, and people follow suit. So you have Lamech, who is uh, a descendant of Cain, and it says mm-hmm. Lamech took two wives. So you see the progression of, of sin here. You see the progression of going beyond what God had created and he murders somebody, and Lamech boasts in it. He says, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's is going to be 77-fold, that uh, he's going beyond even what Cain was doing. You see this spiraling out of control, and then you see Adam and, and Eve have another son named Seth, and Seth is going to be the righteous line. In the beginning of chapter 5, we're uh-huh. going to follow the line of Seth. But uh, one thing you don't think about is Adam and Eve, because we know that, that they lived to a really old age, it says in chapter 5, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth, which he was 130 when he did, were 800 years. So 930 years, that's a long time into the span of Genesis. So Cain is slaying Abel. Lamech is slaying people. Adam and Eve are around for this. Right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're getting to see this and, and think about... 
the lifetime that they lived going from the garden in the beginning and then seeing the way that uh, humanity has fallen. These early chapters are just fascinating. Boy, they really are. And you, you raise a great point there. It's I don't know if you've ever thought about this, uh, if our listeners have thought about this, but Adam and Eve got to see the consequence of their sin play out. Mm -hmm. And in time, they would then see the redemption of God play out as well. But uh, that's just a, it's a story that is just filled with uh, happiness in some cases, but a deep sense of the sadness of sin and the destructiveness of sin and, and what it does to us. Uh, I think you're right about the little excerpts, uh, just to move us along a little bit. But you have Cain and Abel. It bothers me you said this is your favorite section, and I wonder if it's because of the way your brothers treated you when you were young. I'm not sure why you like this, but but basically you get Cain and Abel, and we wish we knew more. Uh, you see Seth, we wish we knew more about him. And, and then as we go into chapter 6, you sort of see the earth hit the bottom. And by the way, for those of you listening, if you read Romans chapter 1, particularly chapter 1, you see Paul understanding this, and he said, look how quickly humanity descends into the depravity of sin. And this is what we're seeing played out here. But chapter 6 opens with these strange giants, Nephilim, and it's almost like a side issue, like you said, uh -huh. before we get to Noah. It's sort of the, the crowning, you know, this is the crown on the idea of humanity had gotten so low God steps in again. Yeah, that, that, that part is really interesting. Um, two th quick things on chapter 5 before we get to Noah, uh -huh. uh, because this shows up in chapter 6 as well. So it, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then again in chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. You see that phrase five times in Genesis, and this is actually the title of the book of Genesis uh, as far as the Hebrews are concerned, right. the generations of the book of Adam. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in or last week on the on podcast with Matthew. Matthew begins his book the same way with Jesus. These are the generations uh, of Jesus leading up to Jesus. This is the title. These are markers. Every time you see this, think about a chapter uh, not the chapter and numbers in the Bible, but a chapter from a literature perspective being opened and closed. Right. The other thing is you get the story of Enoch, which is fascinating. At the end of chapter 5, uh, it says Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And you're just reading along in this genealogy, and all of a sudden you hit that and you say, what? <laughs> so e Enoch didn't die. He right. just, he walked with God. He had a relationship with God, and God just took him, which we see other place in, in the scriptures. We see one other person that way. Uh, we see Elijah, who doesn't die. He was just taken up by God in, in the chariot of fire. Uh, but just wild stuff like this. So you get to the story of Noah. Uh, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Things are terrible. Noah's the only righteous man, but he is very righteous. And he has these three kids. We all know the story probably. God tells Noah to build the ark. It's, it's kind of crazy that he tells him to build this ark. It takes him so long to build it because some people conjecture that it actually had not rained on the earth up to this point. Right. So, and whether or not that's, that's actually true, um, uh, you you got to think that it wasn't just absurd that Noah was calling on the name of the Lord. It was absurd that Noah's building an ark in the desert. It's absurd that he's building an ark when nobody knows the conception of what rain is. And it's absurd that he thinks that God is speaking to him and, it, and is going to save him. Sometimes it's easy to write that off because Noah's a Bible character. But it, it would be just as strange then as it would be now. And uh, he was a real person who did what God asked him to do. We get the whole story of Noah through chapter 9. And a lot of what God is doing is remaking, recreating the world. And uh, we see Noah getting to be the new Adam in the sense that he repopulates the earth uh, with his offspring. And, of course, that goes badly pretty quickly as well. But... Um, 
yeah, this story is familiar to us, but do you have any observations on it that might help uh, explain it or reading this text or being in these chapters? Well, uh, I'd probably throw it back to you here in a second for that. But one thing I want to say, of all the things in the in this first part of Genesis, we've talked about how many different things we'd love to have more information on. If you said, Terry, you can get the full backstory on any one thing, I'm going to tell you what I would want. I want to know and I want to hear the conversation between Noah and his wife when he came home and told her. <laughs> yeah. You mean, what did you say, dear? No, really, an ark, honey. Uh, that's what we're going to do. And uh, you, you see faith here. By the way, that's the one observation I'm making in all seriousness is it takes a lot of faith. Sometimes it's easy. To, I just read that and I go, oh, yeah, so God said build an ark. Noah builds an ark. There's a lot more faith in here if we stop and think about this than we realize. Uh, a lot of people in here are exercising trust in God in spite of circumstances. So mm-hmm. Noah gets a bad rap uh, sometimes, uh, you know, for some things that happen later, but he certainly was an archetype of faith. He was mm-hmm. a precursor, if you will, for us, and that is one who placed his trust in God even when it seemed like uh, human intuition would say something different. So I love that about it. And I love your idea that he is, in a sense, a new Adam. He's an imperfect Adam, but he's a new Adam. And uh, God kind of hits the reset button, I guess, on this. Probably the one thing I'd point out, and then I'd just ask you, what, what are your thoughts of theologically and implications of the flood? But one of the things that touches me is that when God looks around in chapter 6, And he begins to see that everything people do, for example, chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness was man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil. In other words, we spiral down even past murder, even past these other things, and it spread. And then it says this, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. But what really gets me is this, and it grieved him to his heart. God has is feeling sorrow for the creatures uh, whom he loves. And I just think there's another glimpse into the nature of God as love, and love can lead to grieving, can lead to mm-hmm. sorrow. Yeah, obviously we see the compassion of God there for his creatures, and uh, he wipes out evil from the earth. Um, at least he wipes out evil people from the earth. We see that uh, evil, he, he, God says later that he sees that evil is in the heart of man. And uh, that's true. We see that actually in the story as it unfolds. One of the things I really love is the little section we get after they get off the ark. Uh, It says, you know, the water subsided and uh, Noah took his sons and, and wives and animals and they get off the ark. And then in verse 20 of chapter eight, it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took animals that he had just saved. Um, granted he's taking, he took more of these, but he sacrifices them to the Lord and the Lord smells the aroma and pledges in his heart. I'll never again curse the ground because of man, which he's done twice. Now he's done that at the fall and he curses the ground and then he curses it through the flood. Uh, never again will I strike down every living creature while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And, and God actually keeps that promise. A uh, really fascinating loose end to tie up is when John in Revelation chapter four, when John sees the heavenly throne room uh, around the throne, it says is a rainbow. And it reminds you that after all this time from from the beginning chapters of the Bible until then, God has set that reminder that assures us that he means peace for us, that he'll never again destroy uh, the people on the earth. He's he's actually going to redeem the people on the earth through judgment in that scene. But that, that God still has that reminder, the rainbow that he set in the clouds around his throne to remind him of his promises. And um, secondly, I just think about this. How cool is the scene? And just picturing this scene, how amazing would it be that the earth is brand new? It's been flooded. Yeah. Everything has been taken up. And the only thing going on on the entire earth 
is this little family worship service that Noah and his children and his wife are having together, that they come off the ark and the first thing they do is build an altar and worship the Lord. The only man-made thing on the earth at that point is an altar. Oh, that's a great observation. God. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that is the way that they cleanse and christen the new earth. Uh, and God, in chapter 9, he blesses them and then he gives them the same command that he gives to Adam and Eve. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so they are a new Adam and Eve. And like Adam and Eve, they have wicked children. And uh, Noah doesn't do that well either. He plants a vineyard. He's a man of the land. He plants a vineyard. He gets drunk and he's dishonored. There's a lot of discussion over what that means in uh, the literature. But anyway, he's dishonored uh, by his children, so he curses them. Then he blesses uh, his children after that, and we see the generations of his children in chapter 10. And this is where uh, we get another really interesting little section here. Chapter 10 is, is basically a big genealogy. It's the table of nations which is really significant in the rest of the Bible. Um, and I want to make two observations here. As you're reading through this, it's easy to get bogged down with all these names and think that this has, doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, but the first thing you get is this, the mention in verse 8 of Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, obviously very unfortunate name. Um, <laughs> but uh, he is the first on earth to be a mighty man. Um, and there's some discussion on what it means to be a mighty man, but he is the first regional ruler, uh, king. He's a city builder. He is a, uh, warrior, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He is a mighty man. Sometimes people take that to mean he's a giant of some kind. Um, he was obviously uh, a great, strong warrior and he begins to build in the plain of Shinar. Now, this is where we get some connection to the rest of the stories that we're going to read in Genesis. So right. the plain of, of Shinar is, is the land of Babylon. And in the beginning of his kingdom, it says in verse 10, was Babel. That's the first city that he builds. And he goes on into Assyria to build Nineveh, yeah. uh, the, the great city. His descendants are who the Philistines come from, the Egyptians. All of that is going on here in this passage. What's interesting is we get that little excerpt about Nimrod and then we get a bunch of genealogy and we forget that the next story, chapter 11, is referring to this phrase that hit the beginning of his kingdom was Babel is about to be explained in the next chapter. So we get we actually get the kingdom of Nimrod in chapter 11 mentioned in chapter 10. And if you just glaze over chapter right. 10, you, you miss that connection. The second thing I want to say is we get all these ancient nations in chapter 10. There's 17 total if you count them. And th this is where you get all kinds of interesting stuff. And whether or not this is intended or not, I don't know. I can't pretend to, to know this. But I do think it's interesting. In, in the book of John, at the very end of, of his gospel, you have the story where Jesus calls out to... Peter to let down their nets on the other side and pull up and they pull up all these fish. And then it says they, they collected 153 fish, which is unusual for a couple of reasons. First of all, we don't get very many specific numbers like that in the gospels. Secondly, who cares how many fish they caught, but somebody counted <laughs> right. the fish and let us know how many there were. And uh, in a very Hebrew way of looking at that story, the number 153 is really significant because it is, it is the numbers 1 through 17 added to each other. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way up to 17 is the number 153. So I'm not trying to predict, I'm not trying to say the Bible predicts 9-11 or, or, or something like that, right. but I am saying there are some really interesting ways that uh, the New Testament plays on these old sections of the Bible saying, you know, f the disciples being fishers of men means they're going to actually reach the table of nations in chapter 10. Um, and by casting their nets and catching that many fish, it, it's right. a symbol of the ministry that they're going to have 
Uh, that's just one example of the, of, of the connections that you get and the kinds of ways that this ancient literature of Genesis 1 through 11 plays through the entire Bible, even when it's not as obvious that that's what the authors are doing. I agree. Uh, I think that's the subtle connections, which I believe are intentional. You know, in my teaching, I say it this way, and I know it just sounds funny or glib, and I don't mean it that way. I really do mean it to be serious, is God is more brilliant, you know, to use human terminology than we think. I think God is working at so many levels. As you, the more you read the Bible, the more connections you see. Could some of them be coincidence? Perhaps. But I don't think they're all coincidence. And I really do think God is weaving a very coherent story and wanting to connect it all for us. And so I think, for example, the 153 fish, I mean, what are the odds anybody counts the fish and what are the odds anybody writes it down? And mm-hmm. the point is, is I do think God's trying to say, listen, if you think these are disconnected stories, you're wrong. This is all part of my plan together. Well, I have a question for you, but uh, maybe we should do Babel first, and then I want to come back to Nimrod and kind of ask you a question about archetypes. But just to finish this up, um, how would you summarize the story of Babel and the confusion of languages? Well, Babel is a really interesting story. It's a, it, is a, it is the final story in the backdrop of the ancient, ancient world. Um, right. right before we get to Abram, before we get to the covenant that God's going to make with him, we have this story of Babel, and simply put, you have this group of people that come to the plains of Shinar, they begin to build a tower, there's a lot of evidence that they're building a ziggurat, is what they're building, it's a step pyramid, it's a temple to themselves, they're going to go up to heaven, and and they're going to be gods, Um, so of course, God, and, and there's some language in this passage that sounds kind of funny if you just read it on the surface. And what I think you have to realize is the author of Genesis, who we believe is Moses, is mocking the people in the language that he uses. So, for example, right. um, it says, the Lord came down to see the city. Well, some people say, well, okay, so God doesn't know everything because he didn't know they were building a city. and he come down and see it? It's like, uh, I kind of doubt that's the case because in the same breath, this this author has just told us about how God created everything, and mm-hmm. he knows about Adam and right. Eve before. Uh, he talks to them, he floods the earth, he sees Noah. I mean, he, he knows all of this. I think it's more likely that what he's saying is their tower seems so huge to them, but God actually had to come down and see it because it was exactly. so tiny compared to him. So there, there's that going on. He disperses the languages, he confuses the plans of men. And then out of that dispersion and that confusion, we get the story of Abram. And he goes forth from the land of Ur to a land he does not know. And uh, God makes a, a covenant with him. And we'll cover that in part two of, of Genesis. But uh, let's final thoughts on part one of Genesis. Well, uh, on Babel, by the way, which you know we both taught before, but if you just fast forward to Acts chapter two and you see the speaking in tongues, you really see the undoing of Babel. I just Mm -hmm. love those two things as bookends to redemption, if you will. But here's my question. Uh, I know both of us are uh, like Jordan Peterson and some of the things he says. He's quite the phenomenon right now, and for some good reasons. He says some good things. Not uh, what we would understand as certainly a traditional Christian or a Christian at all, but his point of view from a psychological point of view and a Jungian background is that all of these stories are archetypal stories. In other words, they didn't happen, but they're stories that explain some of the deepest memories of the human race, and consequently you can draw great conclusions from them. Well, other, there are Christians who think that too. They say, look, I, I don't know that I need to believe in Nimrod, but it sure looks like Nimrod founded two great Empires, the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh and the Babylonian Empire in Babylon. Maybe that's telling us about how violence breeds violent kingdoms. In other words, we spiritualize it or we take lessons from it without any historical reality to it. We treat it as an archetype. Would you talk about that for a minute and what you think about the idea of these stories as archetypes as opposed to historical events? Yeah, I like what... I like what uh I, I at least like the conversation that Jordan Peterson has started driving people back to some of these stories. Even even in the fact that I reject his 
paradigm for interpreting these stories. So there, there's no reason to me why you would need to believe that these are um, archetypal stories about the human experience and the way that we are wired. Our collective memory is one of the ways that he would describe that. And then at the same time have to assert that they're not historically accurate. Um, that, that's the thing with like the flood, for example, is people say, okay, well, the, the flood is a great story. And we have other stories about the flood, um, worldwide floods or regional floods or whatever uh, in ancient literature. That's, that's not the question. They say, but we have all these great lessons from the flood. But, you know, with archaeology and stuff, we don't actually believe in a flood. Uh, right. At some point, you just get to the point you you get to the the place where you have deleted so many of the historical things that you wonder what leg does that spiritual lesson have to stand on anyway, and why would you want to learn spiritual lessons from a god that you say you believe in who gave us this book that's full of all kinds of historical inaccuracies? Um, it's not a proof of the stories to say that the god of the universe could have made them true, so he did make them true. But you do have to ask the question, if God is all-powerful and he's bringing about all these great spiritual lessons, he's going to raise us from the dead and all of that, then why couldn't these stories be true? It right. gets you to the place where you're asking, do we believe? Do, do we have a hard time believing the accuracy, the historical reality of these stories uh, because we are squeamish? Uh, as to what that might say about us. Maybe we look ignorant to the modern archaeological scene or, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we, we uh, feel like we're going to be uh, viewed as primitive in the way that we've construed of religion. Or do we really think that the historical is, is important but secondary to the spiritual reality? And if, and if we're in the second camp, then I'm, I'm totally comfortable having conversations about right. the historical accuracy of these things. Um, but I just don't understand why the two need to be separated. Now, the, the thing about Jordan Peterson, and we wrote a couple of articles about this, uh, where he's right and where he's wrong, he, he brings a Jungian psychological construct, lays it on top of the Bible, and I think does some really interesting things about it. But one of the, things that, one of the principles that we hold to as Christians is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Right. So in the places where his method is in opposition with what scripture says about itself, then we obviously can't go there with him. It might be interesting and it might be a really great construal of some of the data, but we actually believe that the Bible interprets itself. So for example, we don't think that Abraham is just an interesting patriarch of of the human race. We don't believe that uh, he's one of the first people just to self-actualize or something like that, although that's really interesting. We believe that he made a covenant with God that Jesus actually later fulfilled. And that uh, Paul does all kinds of work with Abraham in Galatians and Romans that tells us um, circumcision is a really important part of the story, something that Jordan Peterson uh, has also dealt with. But uh, actually, the covenant comes and the blessings of the covenant, the promises come before circumcision. Circumcision is actually a marker of a, a subset of this covenant and that that is also fulfilled in Christ. So what I would encourage us to do is Jordan Peterson's lecture series on the first part of Genesis is really interesting. And I wish we had more time to talk about the specific examples that he brings up. But from Mm -hmm. a methodological perspective, uh, he's interesting. He's smart. He's talented. But uh, I would encourage everybody to be clear about how the Bible interprets the Bible and then think about Jordan Peterson as opposed to adopting Jordan Peterson's Project and his narrative, and then applying it to scripture. What, what would you add to that? Well, uh, I agree. I mean, just on a very practical level, there's a lot that could be said, but I just thought it's important to touch on it. Is it's it seems to me that if you want to think about it, and I understand there are a lot of reasons people don't want to believe this. A lot of it happens to just be social, I think, uh, but it's really pales in comparison to have a hard time swallowing the historicity of these things and then accept the idea of resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. One, you are doubting the historical uh, account that this person really did this in history, and the other, you are accepting 
I mean, as Christians, obviously, the fact that despite all scientific evidence, if you will, that we really will be revived from the dead, we really will live eternally. If we can believe that, this seems like a small hurdle to me. So uh, I agree with you. There are legitimate places, I think, to say God can do something, and perhaps uh, we agree with that, and then perhaps maybe have a disagreement on whether or not he chose to do something in that way. But I, I really don't know that it's a, it's a very thoughtful position to say, I don't necessarily believe the stories in the Old Testament, but I absolutely believe that we'll be raised from the dead. It just you know, it seems like an easy thing to believe the historicity of the Old Testament if we can believe that uh, the dead will be raised, which we do. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Mm-hmm.